X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Thursday, April 22nd, and it's our spring fun drive. Without X-Ray, there would be no local. Without you, there would be no X-Ray and no local. Please don't take radio for granted. We need your support to keep the connection and bring our community together when it needs us most. We need your support to emerge from this difficult year stronger than ever. Please do your part and invest in the stations and our community's future. Go to xray.fm and click the blue donate button. Support content curated right in your backyard. Please do it right now. Make your contribution at xray.fm backslash donate. Or give us a call and tell us your X-Ray story, 503-233-X-Ray. That's 503-233-9729. We'd be happy to take your donation over the phone. Today, back in the day, on April 22nd, 1913, the Broadway Bridge opened in Portland. It was the fifth bridge to cross the Willamette River in the city and the first to connect North and Northeast Portland with the West Side. The Broadway Bridge is a bascule bridge, was the first of this design in Portland. It cost a whopping $1.6 million at the time, which would be about $43 million today. Since 1913, the Broadway Bridge has seen a lot of action. In 1963, its 50th anniversary year, it was repainted from black to the Golden Gate red color we're familiar with today. It's been on the big screen a few times, like in the 1996 movie Foxfire and 2008's Untraceable. And in 2012, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places. Today, walkers, bikers, drivers, and max riders still use the bridge every day. What's more, the Broadway Bridge still holds the record for the longest bridge of its design type in the world. Today, back in the day, on April 22, 1970, the first ever Earth Day was celebrated. 51 years ago, more than 20 million people took to the streets across the U.S. in what became the largest single-day protest in human history. Many consider the first Earth Day to be a reaction to the blowing out of an oil drill operation off the coast of Santa Barbara in 1969. Three million gallons of oil spilled into the Pacific Ocean there at Santa Barbara, California, killing more than 10,000 seabirds, dolphins, seals, and sea lions. As legend has it, Senator Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin saw the 800-square-mile oil slick from the window of an airplane and in a moment of inspiration came up with the idea for an annual celebration of the Earth. Since then, the holiday has expanded internationally. Every year on April 22nd, folks across 193 countries participate in a wide range of events to demonstrate support for environmental protection. Today, more than 1 billion people take part in the celebrations, making it the largest civic observance in the world. If you'd like to get involved today, visit earthdayor.org for a list of events happening all across Oregon. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Kristen McCurdy from Street Roots. 
X-ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Portland's black leaders and activists are reflecting on Derek Chauvin's guilty verdict. On Tuesday, Chauvin was convicted of the murder of George Floyd. The news has been met with a mix of reaction from Portland's black community. Here are the words of just a few local leaders. Clackamas Representative Janelle Bynum said, quote, Some may ask if we have turned a corner. I'm not really sure because the laws on the books and our justice system work against the poor, the black, and the disabled. Joanne Hardesty released a written statement. In it, she says, quote, We need to dramatically change policing to ensure it's community-centered and less aggressive. We need real accountability. Today was a rare day where our country finally saw a degree of accountability for police violence. I hope this moment continues to elevate the need to transform a broken system. Hardesty also mentioned that programs like Portland Street Response are examples of such changes. Cameron Witten had this to say, quote, To have heard that verdict just now, it is a breath of air. I am in awe that we finally, as a country, can see some justice in places where justice has never existed before. Don't Shoot PDX released a statement titled, A Guilty Verdict for Derek Chauvin is Not Justice. It goes on, quote, We do not celebrate the bare minimum of accountability, but we are grateful for what could be the start to true police abolition. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 989 new coronavirus cases yesterday. That brings the total number of cases in the state to 177,134. There were six new deaths. The death toll is now up to 2,467. As of Wednesday, 40% of Oregonians have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine, and 25.9% of Oregonians are fully vaccinated. Portland City Council approved a landlord-tenant mediation program yesterday. City Council voted to approve a pilot program where a small number of tenants and landlords can be diverted instead of going to court over eviction filings. They approved a $150,000 contract with Resolutions Northwest, a local nonprofit. This will support mediation services that will be free for tenants and landlords. In some cases, the city will also cover rent assistance. $70,000 will be made available for financial assistance. This comes before a summer that is expected to bring a high volume of evictions once the pandemic eviction moratorium expires. Commissioners believe the program will be helpful, but it also will address only a small portion of the expected eviction cases that will likely go to court this summer. The federal agents who defended the Portland Justice Center last summer lacked uniform training on equipment and use of force. According to a report made public on Wednesday, the officers sent by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security had not all completed required training while some lacked the proper equipment or did not possess consistent uniforms and munitions. The report states that some agents questioned their own involvement in Portland due to lack of training on crowd control and riot response. 
Radio communications between officers from different agencies was poor throughout the ordeal, and annual recertifications on necessary tactics were inconsistent between organizations. The report's findings reflect many allegations made in several lawsuits against Homeland Security after former President Donald Trump sent the agents to protect the area around the courthouse between June 4th and August 31st, 2020. 755 officers were sent at various times from the Federal Protective Service, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and the Secret Service. The area around the courthouse and Justice Center was a regular gathering place for thousands of protesters following the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis Police Department officers. The federal buildings were frequent targets for vandalism and destruction during the protests. The estimated cost of the federal action was $12.3 million. Damages to the Mark O. Hatfield United States Courthouse in Portland totaled about $1.6 million. Portland Public Schools nutrition and custodial staff have launched a GoFundMe for PPE. Even when schools were closed during the past year, nutrition services workers have been distributing meals at outdoor meal sites. But lunch workers and custodians in Portland schools say they have not received adequate face masks. A team of teachers has now put together a GoFundMe page to raise funds for those workers' personal protective equipment. In a statement, a PPS spokesperson said that, quote, the nutrition services and custodial staff have had access to PPE since the beginning of the pandemic. One nutritionist told KGW this week that they were provided with face masks about a month ago, but she said the masks didn't fit everyone and there have been countless delays. The GoFundMe has a goal of $10,000 and seeks to provide 500 essential workers with 20 quality KN95 masks. And finally, some good news. Portland's gender and race inclusive cycling groups are flourishing. Despite being dominated by straight, white, cisgendered riders in years past, Portland's bike scene is rapidly shifting to be a more inclusive space for all riders, thanks to a handful of new groups focusing on cyclists who are people of color, female, trans, and gender nonconforming. Some of them are Bike POC, a group founded in January that has grown rapidly in recent months and helped to organize the Stop Asian Hate Solidarity Ride on April 3rd. The group has quickly established itself as a community hub for cyclists of color. The PDX Unity Ride Collective, who have hosted numerous rides since its inception last summer, by and for women, trans, femme, non-binary Portlanders to enjoy a cycling safe space. Their next ride is scheduled for this Friday, April 23rd. Friends on Bikes, a Portland-based group that began in 2017 with the goal of fostering a cycling community for BIPOC, who are women, trans, femme, or non-binary. The group established a bike match program to rehome donor bicycles to BIPOC Portlanders and they've received 42 donations last year. Other par- Portland cycling groups committed to inclusivity include the Corvidae Bicycle Club, Black Girls Do Bike, and We Bike Portland. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. 
X-Ray. Kristen McCurdy from Street Roots is here to talk about two Oregon bills focused on those with mental illness. Kristen and X-Ray's Andy Lindbergh talk about legislation and creating system change. Oregon lawmakers are currently considering two bills that would make it easier to commit someone to a psychiatric hospital involuntarily. But some mental health advocates say that the system needs a much bigger change than that. Here to tell us more is Kristen McCurdy, a reporter from Street Roots. Kristen, good morning. Good morning. So right now, how hard is it to have someone committed in the state of Oregon? So um, the Multnomah County Mental Health Court uh, sees about, I want to say, 3,000 people per year. They process 3,000 people, and about 300 of those is about 10% um, of those folks end up in some sort of, or or end up going to a commitment hearing, Mm -hmm. I should say. And then of the people who get committed, it's another very small percentage of folks who end up, or of those who go through a hearing, sorry, um, it's another very small percentage of folks who actually end up um, getting committed to psychiatric care. So we're talking about a very, very small percentage of the population. Now, the reason that the number of people who get referred to mental health court um, and the people who get go through a commitment hearing is so much higher than the folks who actually get committed it is, is because our current statute if you look it up, it's pretty vague. Um, it just says something about imminent harm to self or others. Um, but the way that it works in practice is, is that it's guided by case law. <laughs> and, okay. um, and, and so essentially the last few years, there have been lots and lots of appeals. Somebody gets committed um, and then lawyers appeal it. And then that ends up becoming part of what courts have to work with. And um, and that can, it, it's both very complicated and very vague, um, is what I think the people behind these bills have been saying for several years, is just that they don't really have a lot to work with um, in terms of, in, in terms of, of pushing these cases through. So you'll pardon me for, for asking the question in a, an indelicate way. So 10% it seems small. Is that a good thing or a, or is it a bad thing? Oh, um, I mean, that, of course, depends on who you ask. <laughs> I mean, I think I think most people would say um, involuntary commitment is not is not necessarily. And I will say that people that I talk to on both sides of this issue would say involuntary commitment should not be. Obviously, we should not be just running around locking up people okay. um or putting people in <laughs> in restraints um unless we absolutely have to um i think the question the, the 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 stickier question becomes what criteria should we be actually using and mm-hmm. how can we how can we be clear and consistent and still respect people's civil liberties um so, so when we're writing new criteria what what are the what are the what kind of metrics are currently used to determine whether or not someone should be committed? So the current metrics are imminent danger to self or others. And I believe the standard is, I do not have the statute open in front of me, but I believe the standard is within 48 hours. Hmm. And one of the problems is that in effect, because of some of the court decisions that have come down in effect, um, 
or I don't know, maybe problems is editorializing, but one of the issues is that uh, is that you could have that it's very that you have to be very clear that somebody actually has the intention to mm-hmm. do something harmful. So if they're saying something like, "I'm going to go swimming in the Willamette River," and it's February, obviously <laughs> that is not a safe thing to do. But that's not necessarily that doesn't necessarily meet a clear criterion of. Yeah, there are polar bear clubs that that do that sort of thing. What's that? There are polar polar bear clubs that exactly. go swimming there, in February in the Willamette. That's like yeah, a really fun way to spend New Year's Day. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it has to be something much more specific, is my understanding. Um, it, it needs to be something like somebody saying, "I have a gun and I'm going to use it on my family tonight." Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be something very, very clear. Um, and and specific in order for um, in in order for the court to act. So currently, that that specificity is required. Why would why would some people want to make it easier to have people committed involuntarily? I think the um, I think that the push to change the statute is coming from people who are saying, "Look, there are too many people who are falling through the cracks, who are mm-hmm. really not safe in their current situation." Um, but who are not um, who are not going to be covered by the current act, like you know somebody who might be not clothing themselves very well, not taking their meds, mm-hmm. walking around eating out of dumpsters even if they don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the push for this has come largely, I think, from for for these bills has largely come, I think, from people within the judicial system who have been seeing lots and lots of people who they think they should be able to commit that they're not able to commit. Hmm. So uh, you're listening to X-Ray in the Morning. I'm Andy Lindbergh, and we're speaking with uh, Kristen McCurdy about proposed bills that would change the rules around who can be committed to in-person psychiatric care, specifically uh, committed involuntarily. Um, so you, you've gotten into this a little bit, but what groups of people do these laws affect? So um, the two bills that we're looking at kind of address two different populations. One is Senate Bill 187, um, and that would change the language around danger to self or others, and that deals with civil commitments, um, people who get committed to psychiatric care after a court hearing. Mm-hmm. Senate Bill 205 has to do with um, the language around, um, it, it authorizes the court to commit a person to a secure hospital if they're considered an extremely dangerous person with mental illness. And and that bill actually pertains to a slightly different population. Hmm. Um, it's people who have violent histories okay. um, and who may have in the past um, or who who may have just <laughs> been picked up and, and are um, pleading not guilty by reason of insanity, in which case they, they go to the state hospital. Um, it's a, that's a super small population. Um, Senate Bill 187 deals with a much broader population. And I couldn't tell you how many people, but I, I would say that this, the people who tend to get referred to civil commitment hearings, um, I mean, probably lots of people. <laughs> There's probably a wide variety. But I think a lot of the people that I spoke to who have been through this process 
self-identify as having a serious and persistent mental illness, um, mm. have, have identified as having psychotic illness or something that makes it much harder for them to kind of go about their day and, okay. and lead ordinary lives, which isn't to say that it's impossible, um, but that they have more challenges in that area. Well, uh, and so what are the, the some of the alter- alternative ways to help people who are at risk of an involuntary commitment? So one of the other things that the legislature is looking at this session is a bill. And I want to make sure that I get the bill number right. <laughs> um, House Bill 2980, which has to do with, um, it would add funding for peer respite programs. And what the, what the bill would do is actually create three residential peer respite programs, one in Southern Oregon, one in Eastern Oregon, and one in the Portland area, in the Willamette Valley. And what these would be would be programs for um, people who feel like, who maybe have a history of mental illness, and they kind of feel a crisis coming on, um, <clears throat> but they have but they're not necessarily at the point thinking about self-harm mm-hmm. or thinking about harming other people, but they, they, they kind of know um, that, that something is not feeling right and they, they know that they need some time and some treatment. Um, and these centers would also be staffed by people who have lived experience in this area, area, meaning probably people who themselves have mental health histories or diagnoses. Um, and this bill would be... million for three centers, which um, I do not have the numbers right in front of Mm -hmm. me, but this would be significantly less. And it would, it would, would, these would be six bed facilities, each of them. So it would add about 18 beds to the mental health system. Um, So that is one thing that is actually on the table. And I think the other thing that everybody that I talked to said was, you know, there's no one there's no one panacea for all of this. Um, but all, you know, everybody I think agrees that, um, civil commitment should be a tool of last resort. And that we, we, what we really need to do is just more robustly fund the mental health care system in general and make it easier for people to find places to go when they know there's something wrong rather than get to the point where they're so, yeah, um, when they move beyond so their symptoms that. are so strong that they are not capable of making that judgment for themselves. So, uh, so this uh, topic is is uh, covered in uh, uh, this week's Street Roots. It is all right, and uh, those papers are what hitting the streets today, right? They are hitting the streets today. All right. Um, how how can listeners get involved if they're passionate about mental health reform? Oh, that's a good question. There are some really, there are lots of really fantastic organizations out there. Um, I think NAMI is one that lots of people are aware of, the National Association for Mental Illness. Mm-hmm. And they, they are an organization that has lots of opportunities for volunteers um, and at, at different levels, whether it's for family members, for people with lived experience. Um, the other organizations that I spoke to, the Oregon Mental Health Consumers Association, um, there's also organizations called um, the Fire Week Collective and, and um, Rethinking Psychiatry. There's lots of organizations that are really interested in the experience of people who've been through 
um, kind of some of the extremes of psychiatric care. Great. And as mentioned, um, folks can read about this very topic in this week's edition of Street Roots. Find find your local vendor and get a copy. Uh, Kristen McCurdy from Street Roots, thank you so much for speaking with us this morning. Thank you. Thanks to Kristen for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And as a reminder, this is our spring fun drive here at X-Ray. We would appreciate your ongoing support and a gift as you are able. You can give us a call to give a donation today at 503-233-9729 or go to xray.fm and click the blue donate button. We have various thank you gifts, a brand new spring drive t-shirt that we know you're going to love. Again, xray.fm backslash donate or 503-233-9729. Thank you for your support. And thank you, democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.